Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Verse 8 says, He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. They would learn a lesson I was taught very early. I heard it, I logged it, I thought I believed it, but once I experienced it, I really understood it. And that is where God guides, God provides. We'll be taking up today's study in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 6. This is part two of Pastor Sam's three-part message, Jesus in Nazareth. And we start out today by looking at Jesus sending out the 12 disciples. So let's listen in. It's so important to see it. Man's unfaithfulness will never make God unfaithful. Man's ingratitude will never make him unwilling. Men's unbelief will never make him impotent, impotent to do the things he came and wants to do. They were hindered, but in the same way that their forefathers were hindered, because unbelief hinders not what God can do, because he could still do it, but it puts up a roadblock for you to receive, for you to believe, for you to move forward as God intends it says they marveled. Earlier, a centurion made note of him, maybe later in Mark's gospel, but we read about him in Matthew. A centurion, believing Jesus had no need to come to his house to heal a servant, just said, hey, I'm a man under authority. I exercise it. I obey it. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. And he said, Jesus marveled. And he said, I've not seen such great faith, not in all of Israel. None of his own people demonstrated that kind of faith, not yet in him. And so that's one way to make him marvel. Here he marvels at their lack of faith. And lack of faith is unbelief, you see. A whole generation, the very generation delivered from Egypt, from bondage, from their suffering, that generation died. You, you know, it's aptly called in the wilderness of sin. I don't know if they named it later or if it was already called that, but it's beyond amazing to me. They're in the wilderness of sin and they are proving they belong there because sin is all they do and the whole generation dies but God's still faithful. He said, hey, we're going in. I'm going to go before you. You're going to inherit the land. I'm going to bless and flourish and use you. I'll bring forth my son, the Savior, through you. And so the next generation goes in. And that's how God does this. If, if men harden their heart and they refuse to believe. And, and they often say, and you've heard it. Maybe you used to say it. If you used to, I'm glad you no longer do. But uh, I just can't believe in a God that would, if you're that person, just wait to the end of this study, because there's some stuff to say, no way should God allow that if we're the one that actually knows what's right and, and God's unsure. No, God knows exactly what he's doing and he allows a lot of things we can't understand and won't understand. Some of you have a list. You're waiting. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. I'm going to ask him why he allowed that and why he did this. You know what? You won't be able to find the list. And you won't need it because you'll be too busy falling on your face and worshiping the Lord. You will be 
completely amazed. You'll look around and see people and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you made it. And you'll see that same surprised look on some of their faces. So, so where I'm going with this is simple. Our unbelief will not stop others from believing, but it does hinder us. It can keep us. And unrepentant unbelief will keep people from God's plan for their lives. So, um, what is it? You've probably heard it. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. If you want to make him marvel, just walk by faith in him. Just trust him completely. Well, Hebrews 3.12, last thing I have to say, and well, one more because the latter part of verse 6, and then we're going to get back into our actual chapter for today. Uh, beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Context there has to do with the children of Israel in the wilderness and how they saw so much and yet somehow found a way to not trust the one who had done so much for them. Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Demonstrating again. Well, that people can hear, can see, can experience, and then walk away. Well, verse 6 be the latter part here. Did I ever tell you we're back in our, our passage? Did I take us back there? Or did you just know? I actually, either way, it's, if you're in Mark, we're doing well. If you're still in Luke, I'm, that's kind of a bummer. But nevertheless, it was all good because I was saying stuff that you can go back. You'll get the CD and that'll help. Uh, latter part of verse 6, it says, He went about the villages in a circuit teaching. It means he's just taking his disciples with him. They're listening to him. They're watching him. They're observing him. They're taking note of the responses of people to him and the attitudes of people toward him. They're logging it all. And what he's doing is preparing them for the work he's about to send them out to do. So uh, chapter uh, six here, verses seven through 12, we'll get a second snapshot. And that's all this really is. The way Mark writes, short little sections, the word pictures. So first snapshot has to do with Jesus returning home to that synagogue, sharing the word and, uh, and all such things. Well, Second snapshot, he will send them out multiplying his ministry, something he continues to do through us today. Third snapshot, a sobering reminder that our faithfulness to bring the word of God and the love of God and the heart of God to people often causes them to hate us, to reject us, to despise us because, well, the light of the world isn't really appreciated by those who love the darkness more than light. And that's what Jesus says the core problem is. Men won't come to the light because they love the darkness more than light. Neither will they come to the light lest their deeds uh, be exposed as evil. Well, chapter 6, verse 7, here in Mark, then he called the 12 to himself. He began to send them out two by two, 
giving them power over unclean spirits. Earlier he had chosen them, the twelve, to be with him. Then he would send them out to represent him. And this is always his way. We see it even here. He brings them back to him. He prays for them, no doubt. Tells them, here's where we're going. Here's what you're going to do. And he sends them out, in this case, two by two. Why two by two? Because we're told two are better than one. There's safety in numbers. And two is a bigger number than one. Something your kids will learn if they go to school here at Calvary. Uh, <laughs> better than one. And bigger than one. There, there is safety in numbers. There is accountability when two are together. One watching out for the other, praying for the other. If one falls in a pit, we read in the Old Testament, the other can lift him out or her out. Also, Jesus says elsewhere, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. It's kind of good to have somebody you can get back to back with and fend off the wolves and fend off the, the uh, attack of the enemy. He says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The other thing mentioned here is he empowered them. And, and, and he did it because no one again can do the work of the Spirit, the work of God in the energies of our flesh. Verse 8 says, He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. They would learn a lesson. I was taught very early. I heard it. I logged it. I thought I believed it. But once I experienced it, I really understood it. And that is where God guides, God provides. It's not a biblical verse, but it's a biblical concept. God was sending them out to do his work. He would provide everything they needed to accomplish it. And the same is true for us. There's something called God Room. I remember reading it in Franklin Graham's book, um, Rebel with a Cause. And he talks about one of his mentors teaching him that when we get to that place where we meet our, our absolute limit, our extremity, that's where God takes over. Because as long as I can do it, my nature and most of you as well would be like, hey, I got this one, Lord. And then we're like, help, help. I don't got this one, Lord. And, and that's our nature. And, and what we need to know is, well, if it's going to be his work, it needs to be directed by him. It needs to be empowered by him. And when it's all done, he should get all the glory for it. We're just a tool. And I mean that in a good way, not in the negative way. You know, tools can be used for good or you could just be the other kind. But, but in this case, we are tools in God's tool case and his tool What's that little thing? Yeah, it's a tool. Okay, yeah, toolbox. Thank you very much. You can tell I don't even have a toolbox. I got a Bible, and that's all I need. Just this Bible and this microphone and this music stand. So anyway, um, they went out. Oh, no, I, I didn't want to miss this. Uh, he, he tells them, verse 10, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. The reason for this is the false teachers, the false prophets went house to house. And we can understand it. 
They come to town. They meet someone who has got the gift of hospitality. He's like, come and stay at my place. There was no, you know, well, there were a few inns in some of the cities, but not very many. And uh, they weren't always good places to stay. And so he's saying, as you go, uh, someone, you know, uh, welcomes you in. Stay with them until you leave the town. And we know what can happen. You're invited to stay and then you look across the fence and that guy's got a pool next door. He's very friendly, too. So, you know, you've been there a couple days and, you know, I think I'm going to go over and spend a little. I, I, I love sharing with you guys and your hospitality, but I, I really like that guy's pool. And so uh, if you were telling the truth. Right. So so here's the problem. The false prophets went house to house to house to house. After a while, people figured it out. Wait a minute. This guy doesn't really work. He just comes to our house and eats and he goes to that house and stays and he goes to this house. Says thus says the Lord. But I'm not sure he's actually speaking for the Lord. That the Jews had a commentary on the scriptures that suggested if someone comes and they stay more than three days, they're a false prophet or a false teacher. And of course, we know fish and guests start to smell after three days. So that makes total sense. And then. It says if they ask for money specifically, they're a false teacher or a false prophet. If they go house to house, they're a false teacher or a false prophet. There are more. But I think you get the idea. He's saying, I want you to go. I don't want you to store up everything you think you might need. Trust that God will provide for you as you go out to do his work. And don't go house to house. Just stay where you first land and then when it's time to go, then go. And whoever will not receive you, verse 11, or hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. To reject them would be to reject him. And to reject him would be to reject the father who sent him. So it's a serious thing to reject the servants of God who are actually rightly representing and speaking truth for the Lord. So there, there's something else, though, it says, and it's a little strange. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Sodom and Gomorrah went down pretty hard, fire and brimstone from heaven. And so what's he talking about? He's talking about the final judgment. And it turns out that, that having your whole city destroyed by fire and brimstone isn't the worst thing that can happen to people. Having the, the whole planet flooded in the days of Noah, not the worst thing that can happen to people. Because the next judgment is eternal, everlasting. It, it's separation from God forever. And, and of course, th there could have been people in Sodom that repented once they figured out, Lot told us the truth. We don't know. But, but what we do know is that the first the first judgment, the scripture describes it like this as it would relate to us. There's the first death and there's the second death. The first death is physical. The second death is eternal, spiritual and such. Well, anyway, what else happens so we can press on? 
They went out, verse 12, as instructed, they preached that people should repent. I love that. That's exactly what God had in mind. Verse 12, they went out, they preached that people should repent. Do you know this was the, the, the first word from John the Baptist as people came to him and they're like, sup? And he's like, repent. And it's like, well, happy birthday, repent. That's John's message. That's John's ministry. And our study closes with John the Baptist in a situation you would never have expected to see him in, especially if you've never read the Bible. But John called everyone to repentance. Important to note that after his baptism and temptation, the first words out of Jesus' mouth, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, repent. It's always repent, you see. I remember James Edwin Orr, great writer about the revivals over the, the you know, centuries, the things that God has done in his church down through the ages, saying that, that repent was a missing word in the message of the gospel today. Now, I know the word repent isn't in the, the, you know, Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again. That's the gospel according to Paul. And it's the gospel. It's the good news. But he died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. We, we get the implications. We were dead in trespasses and sin, but we had to believe in him in order to receive forgiveness and life. That's repentance. We think we're going to be fine. We realize we're not. And we're like, God, forgive me. I've been such a fool. Now, I, I, I want to give my life to you. I've been living this way. And I know that's not the way you want me to live. Think, talk, be. So repentance is the key for the unbeliever to come to Christ. And then it's a key for believers because as we study the scripture, I don't know if you've noticed that there are a lot of places where God gets personal with us. And some of us were like, hey, listen up, listen up, listen up. And then all of a sudden it's like, bam, it gets you and you're like, hey, getting a little weird here now. I'm not sure I agree with this guy completely. If that happens to you, you better repent. I'm not, think whatever you want about me, but his word, if it's coming forth and it's, it's nailing you, man, you want to respond to it. Well, we get to our third snapshot and it's one that's just crazy. Oh, one more, one more verse, verse 13, and then we'll look at, at Herod and John and Herodias. Then they cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They went out doing what Jesus had shown them, now commanded them and empowered them to do. So again, if you know what he's called you to do, do it, but do it in his power, at his bidding and for his glory. Now, verse 14, King Herod heard of him. That's Jesus. For his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist has arisen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. Superstitious and paranoid, Herod starts a rumor that no one on his staff, apparently, no one close to him, 
was willing to say, hey, Herod, that does not make any sense. Why? Jesus and John were contemporaries. Jesus and John were cousins. Jesus and John ministered alongside one another. John is the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Herod should not have been oblivious to these things, but he wasn't paying attention till he felt personally threatened. And he feels threatened. It's not the same Herod who had all those babies destroyed after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That guy was Herod the Great. This is Herod the Tetrarch or Herod uh, Antipas. That's one of four who were ruling together at that time as they split up the kingdom after uh, Herod the Great was no longer ruling. So here we have a guy who thinks Jesus must be John reincarnated. Of course, reincarnation is not real. It's a hoax. It's a, a satanic substitute for the reality, which is resurrection of every person on the planet appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment, not once to die, and then you come back and try to do better or come back and try to do better again. A lot more to that, but it's for another time. Others said, it's Elijah. Some others said, it's the prophet or, or like one of the prophets. Now, they had come to John when he was baptizing in the wilderness and they said, hey, are you Elijah? Because Elijah is supposed to come before the great and notable day of the Lord. It's there in the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. And he said, no, I'm not Elijah. And they go, well, are you that prophet? Because Moses promised another like him. So that would be a reference to a specific prophet. No. Or, well, are you a prophet? And, and he says, listen, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight paths for the coming of the Lord. Straighten it out. Get ready. The Lord is at hand. It's interesting because John was so humble. But Jesus said, among men, no one was ever born who was greater. We also know John was the end of the Old Testament dispensation of prophets. There are still those who prophesy in Scripture, and uh, we can certainly say, thus says the Lord, that's prophesying in the sense as long as we're declaring His actual word, what's well, absolutely true. Well, that, so we prophesy, but, but he is the last of the prophets because the scripture says the law and the prophets were unto John. He closes the dispensation of the law and the prophets, Jesus beginning the dispensation of grace that we're still living in. So John said, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. I'm just a voice. I'm just here to declare the word of God and to point to the Son of God. When Herod heard it, he said, this is John whom I beheaded and he has been raised from the dead. It mentioned that, that he, he thought the powers, the works Jesus was doing was evidence that, that he was actually John the Baptist. But we're told of John, he did no miracle. He had one word, one ministry, it was a one string guitar and he never tuned it. He just played that one note all the time. And so, so here, here you have it. He thinks because he's paranoid, because he has no actual right to the throne 
upon which he sits. Okay, you say, I'm willing to do what Jesus has called me to do. And I want to do it in the power of the spirit and not in the power of the flesh. However, I'm not 100% sure of what it is that I'm supposed to do. Well, don't laugh. A lot of Christians get stumbled by this. So start by doing what you're commanded to do. Ezekiel 36:27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Being obedient to God is not easy. It requires guidance and power from the Holy Spirit. And as we get down obedience with what we read in his word, with his help, he will give us more and more to do. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.